This is Michael Leary with More Than Meets the IRB, a conversation about research participants and the people who study them. More Than Meets the IRB is a joint initiative of Washington University in St. Louis and public responsibility in medicine and research. Primer advances the highest ethical standards in the conduct of biomedical, behavioral, and social science research. Primer accomplishes this mission through education, membership services, professional certification, public policy initiatives, and community building. Welcome back to More Than Meets the IRB. This is now our ninth episode of the podcast, and we have a really exciting conversation ahead. But before we get to that, I want to invite you to tell us how we're doing. Is there something you want to hear about? Is there anyone you want us to talk to? Just let us know. We want this to be your show. So even if just to say hello, send us an email. There's a link to contact info on the Primer page for the podcast. Back to this installment. In 2014, Karen Masterson published The Malaria Project, the U.S. government's secret mission to find a miracle cure through New American Library. Many of you have probably read this already. If you haven't read it, you should get a copy. We'll link to it from the description of this podcast. The Malaria Project is a history of the U.S. government's attempts to find a cure for malaria during World War II. It is a fascinating, detailed story. It's the kind of work that makes sense of what we do in institutional review boards. And during this conversation, we get a bit of a glimpse of one of my favorite topics, which is the role journalism plays in research ethics. Stories like the one Masterson uncovers in The Malaria Project help us see research ethics in fresh ways. For nearly a decade, Karen Masterson was a daily reporter, most recently covering the U.S. Congress for the Washington Bureau of the Houston Chronicle and environmental and conservation policies for the South Jersey Bureau of the Philadelphia Inquirer. She has also written for The Lancet, The Baltimore Sun, and several online publications and wire services. She left newspapers to pursue her interest in microbiology and won a Knight Journalism Fellowship to study malaria at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta and rural Tanzania. She is currently journalist-in-residence at the Stimson Center and a faculty member of the writing program at Johns Hopkins University. Can you tell us a bit about the Malaria Project? It's uh, a fascinating account, not just of research in the 1940s and what research used to look like and how human subjects once participated in research, but uh, there's also uh, information here specific to malaria research in the U.S. and internationally that has been published uh, in this way before. Can you tell us a bit about the Malaria Project and the overall narrative of your work here? Sure. The Malaria Project is really about World War II and malaria. So the military had this horrible problem um, that they were losing troop strength. And on Guadalcanal, at, you know, like 80% in, 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 at certain times because of malaria. Um, the men were getting sick and they were unable to fight. They, in the casualty rates, at, it changed over, depending on the battle, but at some points it was 30 times greater than enemy fire. Oh. So you, you had commanders who were, had no, knew nothing about malaria and they were watching their troops uh, disintegrate and, 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 and they were in the hospital. They weren't, Dying, they were in the hospital, and they, they, um, in, in the field hospitals, which were re- really just under the, you know, the blown off palm trees. The fronds are all gone, and the, the men are lying next to each other, sick with fever, 
and then they would get better and they'd be sent out to the front lines and then they'd have a relapse because they were, they were um, contracting a type of Vivax that relapsed every month. So uh, the, mili the military had this gigantic problem and they called on the scientific community to do something about it. I found the scientific community's papers first. I didn't know about the context. Okay. I had read enough about World War II. I was a history minor. I didn't read after I got out of college that much about World War II, but I knew a little bit and had never heard about this malaria problem. I came across the scientific papers, which were all about trying to find a cure for malaria because one did not exist before the war. And quinine had been uh, taken out of the equation because the Japanese had blockaded the the um, quinine plantations on Java. So quinine was made from a bark, uh, and the 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 plantations where this tree, the cinchona tree, was uh, grown, um, had been blockaded. So there was no quinine, and the military needed. They had they had very limited supplies, and the military needed a new drug. And I I found the papers that I that identified the way they were they, trying to make new drugs. Yeah, can you, so you encountered this story, right? How, how did you come across this? Because uh, this is the first account of malaria research from this perspective, and it contains, your book contains a lot of uh, data that's been unpublished because you, you found this uh, during archival research, right? Right, so I had been a political reporter. Um, I, I covered Congress for a big Texas newspaper, and um, I had been doing that long enough um, to know that um, I wanted to do other things. I had been, I'd done a lot of environmental reporting for the Philadelphia Inquirer, so I wanted to get back to scientists, and I accepted a fellowship at Johns Hopkins, and I took this course that was taught by somebody I knew um, at University of Maryland called Mining um, the National Archives. Okay. And while I was taking this course and retooling um, my direction as a reporter, I decided that I just wanted to look up the papers of Linus Pauling because I thought that uh, there was a book there. There was I knew enough about Linus Pauling that I wanted to at least explore the option, and very little was known about his work during World War II. So I just used I used that as an exercise, and I worked with an archivist to identify in they're finding aids. They have a room bigger than my house that is nothing but finding aids to help you locate papers in their two million cubic uh, feet of, of archived records. And so I worked with this uh, person for maybe three days, and we finally figured out using uh, Linus's, Linus Pauling's affiliation. So he worked for Caltech. And we found his government contract number, and through that we could locate where we thought his papers would be. And I put my call slip in, which requires all kinds of location information, put it into the desk, and then I went and had lunch, and I waited the hour or two, however I forget how long it took for them to get the box back to me. And I, you know, and then I had my I had my box, and I brought it to the, you know, to the desk on the second floor of the of the reading room of the archives, and I opened it up, and they were files all. With uh, uh, the with names on them with that began with the letter P, but there was no Pauling, which was frustrating because I had done so much work to get this box. Yes, yeah. It's not there on Pauling, so you know I still felt like I had this box of history in front of me, which is really cool. So I pulled out 
a file, um, just randomly pulled out a file with the name Perkins on it. And it turns out uh, he was the uh, chief public health officer for the state of Massachusetts. And really, the, 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 the first memo I read was from the National Research Council asking uh, Dr. Perkins if federal researchers could come in and give malaria to his neurosyphilitic patients and his schizophrenics so that drugs could be tested against the infections, no less than the worst outcome was at stake. So for me, this was shocking. I was stunned. I, didn't really, I, I, did, I, had, I had no context, but yeah. it yeah. just seemed to me like this was probably wrong, that federal researchers shouldn't go into a state hospital and infect people with malaria so that we could test drugs against them. So yeah. that's, that's what... That's that's what drew me in, and that so that began the story of what you chronicle in your book. Uh, not only does that begin a, a lengthy research program in the history of malaria research and research ethics, but also some real immersive journalism, which you expose yourself to malaria research and even travel to Africa to see it in person. This aspect of your of this the story behind this book is really fascinating because the way that research ethics traditionally proceeds is that a crisis happens. And uh, then, uh, you know, federal policymakers and research ethicists and IRBs are, are mobilized to respond. Uh, but usually the way that crises happen is a journalist cracks a case. Uh, we, we discover something that, that happened either in America or abroad um, that really opens our eyes to the abuse of human subjects in a specific context, which is what you have here. So... Can you talk a bit about that? So you you come in as a journalist, kind of an outsider to the the IRB human subjects research world, and find this this really important scene for discussion. Now, what was it like to discover this new world? What what did you do next? So I had to understand the context. I knew that. I went back to the to my home office and I googled and found <laughs> very little because this was two thousand and four. So there's very little up on on um, the internet <laughs> and now there's a lot more now you can find a lot more but back then there was very little I went you know I, I was affiliated with Johns Hopkins so I was able okay. to use their excellent library and call up some books where I found a you know a chapter here and there that touched on the medical experiments of World War II um, but none of it uh, none, none of what I read offered any context um, and it was all very critical and so you know the journalist in me just kept pulling on these threads. I ended up going through in over 500 boxes. I kept oh. calling up these boxes from different record groups, and I kept working with this one archivist who was very helpful. I even went back into the refiles because I knew stuff should have been in the boxes. Like, like Pauling wasn't in his box, right? Somebody took Pauling's files out and put them somewhere else. Well, I was working with an archivist who knew enough about how these files work to know that they were, were probably put back in refiles. So I went back into the bowels of the ar archives just going through boxes and boxes and finding more and more so that I finally had what were just all these pieces to a puzzle. And I started putting them together. I worked with um, another man who was very important, Leo Slater, who at the same time was writing a book on the pharmaceutical aspect of this project, but he didn't have it. He, he hadn't been published. So I, I, I found him because a professor at Hopkins had told me about the work that Leo was doing. So then Leo and I had started going to the archives together, helping each other, with the different records because we had very different goals for our writing and I you know I I finally had what 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 I what I understood was the story and that was that there, this this military crisis had had uh, 
called up over 400 scientists at 50 universities um, and uh, got involved. Most of the pharmaceutical companies in the country, at least the, the bigger reputable ones, which they were very tiny relative to what they had today, but they were small back then, and, the, and all the private labs um, to, to, make, to make drugs, and they modeled their program after the German model. Um, the most important piece of context, though, was research on this guy, Julius Wagner Jarg, who was an Austrian uh, psychiatrist who won a Nobel Prize for infecting syphilitics with malaria and curing some of them using a, a biological agent to kill a different biological agent. And what I learned was that this was a, this, this, even though still some 20 to 30 percent of the patients given malaria to treat their neurosyphilis died because of the malaria, mm -hmm. some other 20 or 30 or maybe 40 percent, depending on the stage of, of syphilis that the treatment began during, um, were cured completely of insanity. And so um, what, what became, I think, the, the most important part of my education was that I learned, and I didn't know anything about it, I learned that our, our psychiatric wards and our state hospitals, if they could afford it, would use malaria therapy for the neurosyphilitics. Back then, syphilis was rampant, and it, the, uh, it, depending on the country, the percentage of patients in these state hospitals was quite high um, because of neurosyphilis. And so this was a legitimate treatment. And when there was this partnership between um, malaria researchers and these state hospitals just for the, to, to help treat these patients with malaria, and then as, a, as an aside, the malaria, the malaria experts would get to study this disease malaria. Mm -hmm. um, there was a balance. But as the exigencies of war became clear, the balance changed. And at the, moving forward, the Germans and the Americans just used this therapy as an excuse to give malaria to not just neurosyphilitics in the state hospitals, but also bipolar, people with bipolar disorder and the schizophrenics. And they were just, they needed this clinical material. And so they completely crossed over this, this, this accept, accepted line. There were no ethical standards back yeah. then. It was kind of ad hoc, yeah. right? But they completely stepped over this, this line and just started infecting people as, as they could with the ends justifying the means. And, and so that, that, that was a, that was, that informed how I put the story together. So some some of the kinds of research that you're describing are it's fairly well known among the IRB community in different disciplines. And dermatology, for example, we know about studies that were conducted in prisons even up into the 60s. And um, and these are these are stories that that circulate when we educate new IRB members or uh, want to provide a rationale for what what it is that we do as IRBs. But uh, the general public is often really unfamiliar with with how research was conducted uh, in, in the U.S. before we had regulations in the 70s. As a journalist, coming in from the outside to this uh, this whole story, this whole world of human subjects research, uh, what, do you, what do you think about how research was conducted uh, in the 40s? Your book very, very well describes the mindset, really, of a researcher and a scientist in the 1940s. Uh, but we're decades past that, do you think that uh, research has changed or do you think that what it means to be a participant in human subjects research has shifted since the period you were studying in your work? Well, I, I, what's very interesting to me is that James Shannon, who was one of the lead investigators for this malaria project, 
um, went on to be head of the NIH and one of the uh, you know original thinkers on how to do things better. And he he is credited with being one of the original thinkers on the creation of the IRB, right? And yeah, yeah. I I assume that he got to that place because of what he witnessed in this malaria project, himself included, like the work that he did. He probably viewed these patients and and then the prisoners because they went to prisoners after they ran out of clinical material in the state hospitals as material and you see it in his letters and you see it in his in his memos and you you see it in the in the minutes of these meetings that they had um that that they were not people they were clinical material and they were needed for for the war effort and it was interesting my story ends after the war it's interesting to me now to be uh talking with people in the bioethics community that james shannon went forward and actually and actually thought through the problems of this ad hoc process mm-hmm. so these each each um uh um investigator each lead investigator for their university or their lab or their their pharmaceutical company had their own little fiefdoms and they would get money um and they would run things the way they wanted and so i chose to hang the whole narrative on a guy named Lowell Cogeshell who i felt had his biological thinking um turned down that he he and also another scientist alf alving um really worried about what was happening to the state hospital patients they were seeing that they were dying from the malaria and they were trying to figure out better ways to do it um james shannon was very he he got permission from the state of new york to gather up all of the states psychiatric patients uh neurosyphilitics uh the bipolar anybody who who he could use into in, on, onto what was then welfare island but it's Roosevelt Island now mm-hmm. the two hospitals there so that he could have all the clinical material that he wanted so i feel like the the what happened there actually directly influenced what came later with the creation of the IRB because of Shannon and and i wonder you know was that because he viewed his own work perhaps in retrospect as a little bit too aggressive uh. I, i find it interesting that the trend now is to push against these strict rules um uh, of uh in 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 use of human subjects in clinical trials in this country um especially when somebody has a disease or some kind of cancer that is rare and there's a trial and they want to get in on it you know that they have to actually you know beat down the door of the IRB so that they can be a part of it but I, you know i think this is this is not my area of study but it feels to me like the standards for people in this country um are are vastly improved um but i you know i think those came in the 60s right after dr beecher's yeah so we tend to read human subjects uh research prior to the regulations as uh kind of a dark ages for ethics in the US uh whereas as you note uh this is actually the period in which we see the seeds or or signals of what we currently have in the Belmont report uh buried in the records of the kinds of scientists that you were working with uh which is fascinating uh partly because an, another really interesting feature of your book is that you got to spend time with uh an aging uh, scientist in the, the malaria community um which is pretty rare because we we don't have many examples anymore of researchers that uh are working now that were also working back in the 30s and 40s. What was it like working at the CDC with an investigator, a researcher that had 
operated in both eras. Right. So I was very fortunate. I got a, a, a Knight Foundation Journalism Fellowship to go spend three months with malaria experts at CDC's malaria branch. And um, you know, part of the time I spent in Tanzania with um, lead investigators um, on some malaria projects there. But most of the time I spent with a man called Bill Collins. He uh, what he, he claimed he was the oldest uh, uh, working malariologist in the government. Um, and he had he had been around. He, he loved to say, I've been around long enough to know what it was like to work on on humans to give people malaria. He worked at the South Carolina State Hospital and he, he gave neurosyphilitics there uh, malaria, even though penicillin came out of World War II and was a clear treatment for syphilis. Um, there were still plenty of neurosyphilitics in in uh, in state hospitals, and so he he gave malaria to uh, to people, and he lamented. He said those were the good old days when you could actually infect people and study the parasites as they you know as you're giving them drugs to see how they respond, and just really basic research on the parasites because back then you couldn't culture um, a malarial parasite; you had to have a live infection to study it. And so he said, these are the good old days, and now I have to work with monkeys, and they're a pain in the neck because they try to bite you, and they're, you know, and they, they, they die too easily. And I said to him, I said, you know, I'm a reporter, right? <laughs> and it didn't dawn on him that this was anything but good information to pass on. This is, he, he remembered the good old days, and, uh, and he wanted to share that piece of history with me. And it was through him that I started thinking like a malariologist so that I could get into the materials without uh, too much judgment because I think being outside, being an outsider, I could have cast all kind of judgments over these, these, these do-gooders. They were trying to do good. They needed to find a malaria drug to stop the hemorrhaging of troops overseas that it, it wasn't just in the Pacific. It was also yeah. Mediterranean theaters. And they just, so uh, he, he got, he got me thinking uh, like a malariologist. Um, I don't think that I let any of the scientists off the hook, but I feel like I was much fairer to them because of Bill. Yeah. Yeah, I think you you really hit in this book on the complexity of what we do in the IRB world, which is why your scholarship is so important to us in the Primer community. Hearing these stories. Uh, hear, hearing from you share the details of getting to know researchers that have been working in both eras and rooting around in the archives so that we can see uh, you know, uh, the, the actual detail and data regarding the kinds of things that we used to do. So I hope that we see more of your work here at Primer. Um, I know many enjoyed your, the presentation on this book at the Primer 2015 conference. Boston. So we look forward to hearing from you again and talking with you again, hopefully in the future. Thanks for your time. Well, thank you, Mike. Nice talking to you. This has been More Than Meets the IRB. Thank you for joining us. We will see you next time.